0: Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, a look at cyber issues industry will be focused on during the coming year. But first joining us is Justin Sherman, the founder of the Global Cyber Strategies Consultancy, who is also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Straight Initiative and also a Wired Magazine contributor. Justin, it's always great to have you uh, back on. Happy New Year and thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year and great to be back. Uh, Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo, DRS, and HII. Sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. As I mentioned, sponsors our weekly cyber report, as well as our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and HII, our naval coverage. And Leonardo, DRS, HII, and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium uh, last week. So please uh, check out our coverage on our site, as well as our weekly Kavos Ships uh, podcast. Uh, Justin, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Two very hot cyber topics, obviously. Uh, one is the ransomware attack on uh, the Royal Mail, one of the world's most important, uh, certainly delivery companies, mail companies, uh, uh, comp- uh, You know, crippling the company's uh, global operations. Uh, and I know you're not an innocent bystander on that, so we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. And the other is the future of, of TikTok uh, in the United States, uh, over which there have been headlines for for some years now, but coming to a head certainly. Let, let's start with the ransomware attack uh, and what it uh, means. Um, you know, the overwhelming perception we had uh, in the wake of Colonial Pipeline and and on the food industry and elsewhere, you know, but Baltimore among other things and other cities around the country was that we were doing better on on uh, kind of curbing ransomware. Uh, turns out, not so much. Uh, Lockbit, the the company uh, behind this or the organization behind this. Uh, attack is the world's most successful such outfit. What's happening? And tell us about this group and um, why it's managed to be as active as it has at a time when everybody's trying to crack down on ransomware.
1: Going in order, the uh, ransomware incident in question uh, happened last week uh, against the UK Royal Mail Service and um, you know, there was, uh, as a result of this, a disruption to uh, all of the normal national mail functions. So shipping packages and and mail and processing things. And um, yes, I I too was uh, uh, enveloped in in this incident. I had um, something uh, shipping and got a note, uh, which I have never gotten before that said, uh, hello, we're going to have a delay of a few days because... Uh, the shipper was hit by a, a cyber attack and uh, there was a delay. So that's kind of uh, interesting, uh, personal first for me with um, something being shipped. But also to say, so this happened. And of course, uh, in the scheme of things, hitting uh, an entity that's shipping packages and letters around the world is really consequential and sort of speaks to some of the really disruptive effects that can happen from ransomware. It's obviously not the worst kind of thing. I know we've talked before about, um, and you've had plenty of guests on about uh, ransomware against hospitals and and other 911 systems. I mean, those are far more critical than uh, someone getting their package, but packages are still very important and people get medicine through the mail and and other kinds of things. So um, the group behind this, uh, according to, The UK government, as you mentioned, is Lockbit, which is a ransomware attack that is a ransomware group, rather, that is uh, widely believed to um, be located in uh, Russia. And so, uh, you know, Lockbit is also the name of the ransomware. People sort of use uh, the name of the ransomware and and this uh, ransomware group interchangeably. Um, And so it's been behind a bunch of attacks and sort of speaks to Uh, a broader cyber and sort of national security uh, set of questions, which is that the Russian government for many, many years has provided a safe haven for cyber criminals. Um, To some extent, this is intentional. Uh, The Russian uh, intelligence services are able to call up and even pay for hire uh, various criminals to do things for them. And they do this all the time. Uh, And some of this was not intentional. There were a lot of people who were really good developers and programmers and technically talented when the Soviet Union collapsed, who uh, didn't have job prospects. And the most uh, lucrative thing to do was, um, you know, start stealing money uh, online and to pay off some local uh, law enforcement people to look the other way. So um, all to say, it's one incident. But but as you alluded to, fits into this broader pattern and issue we have in the West with um, you know, cybercrime groups that are given safe haven in Russia.
0: We've been uh, trying uh, to. Uh, police this. Um, The United States has been doing uh, stuff. I mean, uh, you know, let's be honest, uh, whether it's NSA or U.S. Cyber Command uh, or uh, MI6 or uh, GCHQ, uh, tremendous uh, organizations have not just been supporting uh, Ukraine uh, to defend itself against Russian aggression, uh, but also have been operating forward to blunt uh, Russian uh, cyber operations. And the president of the United States and other European leaders have warned Russia uh, that, you know, if they take any action against them uh, is going to be highly problematic, and we would respond in, in, in kind. Um, you know, As you said, it's very unlikely that you know, a Russian ransomware group is going to do this without some sort of tacit blessing or some form of coordination with government. How does the world need to be responding to this uh, strategically? And then on a tactical basis, what does this tell us about how it is we should be countering uh, ransomware? Uh, attacks uh, more broadly, whether they're purely criminal or sort of pseudo state uh, right proxy entities? It's a really tricky question. There's a
1: range of, uh, there are a range of different proposals uh, around this uh, issue, some that are more, I don't want to use the word aggressive, some some that uh, propose more forward action. So uh, we've seen the US government hack into uh, servers used by TrickBot to uh, malware to to um, disrupt, you know, cyber crime activity. Uh, there was a story uh, about, I think, the end of 2021 about U.S. Cyber Command working with an unnamed foreign partner to hack into the servers of our evil, uh, the Russian cyber crime group, um, in order to Uh, you know, basically uh, deprive them of the servers and other things they were using to extort people. So they didn't blow up all their infrastructure, so to speak, um, but they, you know, had a targeted attack against what this group was doing when it was launching all these attacks against U.S. infrastructure, um, including uh, the notorious Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware incident. So um, you know, you have people who say, that's what we need to be doing. The reality of this space is there is constant uh, action and hacking and hacking back. And the only way, realistically, we're going to get individual uh, groups to stop doing things is if we actually say, you know what, we have the capabilities, we're going to knock your command and control server offline, for example. Um there are also people who say that's akin to playing whack-a-mole and running around. And every time a hacker uh, comes up, you know, you whack them on the hand and you just try and hire a bunch of, you know, people whacking people on the hand uh, until the end of time. Um, And so that's where we get into, like you said, these questions of what is the strategic uh, change we need to have happen, whether that's having uh, companies have to report different incidents to the government, whether that's more money for an organization like CISA uh, to supply people with, uh, you know, technical measures to uh, try and prevent ransomware attacks with, um, you know, there are companies actually who operate in the space of, we will negotiate uh uh, I mean, I don't do this, but there are other people who specialize in, you know, we can negotiate with a ransomware group for you, or we can try and find the keys to decrypt your data. So, um, yeah, so whole, you know, sort of whole range of of responses. I think where the U.S. is right now, we're doing some of that forward action stuff. And I think the national uh, cyber strategy that's going to be coming out shortly uh, reportedly has some of that forward leaning kind of stuff in it so it'll, yeah it'll be really interesting to see sort of what the White House says in terms of how do we deal with these kinds of persistent uh, issues from from foreign hacker groups
0: um, I, sh- I should also point out right I mean you you, you jumped uh, to my next question right the national cyber uh, crime reporting is actually a critical, uh, way to gauge this and why guys like Mark Montgomery, who joined us last year, uh, but also Jim Langevin and many other members, uh, or, uh, the co-chairs of the Solarium Commission, uh, both Senator King as well as uh, Mike Gallagher, have said on the program how you know important that feature is to try to you know get a better understanding of the magnitude of the problem, because whether they're companies or individuals, they keep too much of this secret, right? And the more you report it, the better the visibility, the better you can fight it.
1: Exactly, and that's um, precisely the motivation behind some of these proposals for incident tracking, for even things like a Bureau of Cyber Statistics to say, you know, if you want to, uh, Jenny Easterly has said this, uh, the, the director, director of CISA and, um, and who spent a long time at the NSA has said, you know, if you're trying to understand a problem, especially uh, one in the cyber domain, you need to actually be able to measure the problem. And so you need to have numbers that talk about activity and talk about risk levels. Uh, And so quantification and and incident tracking is a really important way to drive forward um, action. It gives you metrics on how you're doing on how other people are doing. So there's definitely a lot of, of interest in that. Again, industry generally speaking is very hesitant to Uh, and very resistant in some cases to doing anything where they have to report stuff to the government. Um, In part, that's all companies, right? They just don't want to have to deal with that. But there's also a bunch of concerns uh, as we know in cybersecurity around, well, am I sharing technical details of my network with you? What kinds of things do I have to share? Right. Because if I have a, you know, if I run a fortune 500 company and I have to file a report every time somebody Pings uh, a port in my computer network. Like I'm going to be, I'm going to have to hire a hundred people to write ten thousand reports a day, and that's right. So, right, probably way more. Right. So, so you get into these questions, like you said, of okay, if we're going to do this, how do we do it? How do we scope it? That's where a lot of the lobbying and the debate happens. But, um, but as you said, I do think we're moving towards more of a recognition, and this is what the national cyber strategy reportedly says. We need to be more pro regulation. We need to have more guidelines and frameworks in place to have a government and industry aligned on some of these uh, security missions.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to uh, TikTok. Obviously, uh, the company has been on a, a charm uh, offensive, uh, as uh, we heard uh, this week uh, from uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, the Wisconsin Republican who's uh, chairing the new select committee uh, on China. Right. It's it's not just a social media site. People actually get their news from it. And it's a foreign entity that controls the algorithms for that. Uh, there were concerns about uh, all of the data uh, that's collected with uh, you know, one of the world's most popular apps going to China. Uh, the company is on a charm offensive saying, hey, we, you know, all of the American data is now on uh, American servers. Uh, there's discussions about whether it's going to be Oracle or Microsoft uh, should be uh, the company that acts as a third party intermediary. Uh, and, and then there are folks who say, look, this is just too risky. Let's ban it. And indeed, the Biden administration banned TikTok from all government computers uh, and devices. You've written a lot about this, uh, Justin. What's the way ahead? Is a simple ban ahead? And actually, should we be looking well beyond TikTok, uh, but also fundamentally how the entire app ecosystem works? I'm going to ask you about WeChat in a little bit uh, as well, uh, right? You could be a very loyal American born in the United States, but have relatives or naturalized American, but have relatives in China, and you're using WeChat. And then there are all que- kind of questions uh, that, that come from that. Let's talk about TikTok. What's the right approach uh, for the administration and for the United States to be using, and the kind of template we need to have when it comes to personal data security, um, transparency uh, into algorithms. Because actually, as we saw with TikTok, minor changes to an algorithm determine whether tens of millions, you know, the kind of content people ultimately see.
1: Yeah, it's a really uh, obviously big point of discussion in in dc right now in terms of tech policy and and also nationally i think 20 something states have enacted bans on tiktok on government devices a bunch of uh state university public universities um you know alabama texas uh, others have enacted bans on on tiktok on the university networks which is like a completely different and and in some ways to me very bizarre thing but um to for, for a university to be spending time on but I think part of the, before we talk about the, the ban stuff itself, I think part of the challenge with uh, the TikTok debate is there are so many things going on at once that get piled all together or conflated, uh, whether accidentally or on purpose. Um, you mentioned several of them. One is this issue of uh, all apps, right? All apps collect a ton of data and way more data than people think uh, and share way more data than people think. Um, an example is TikTok, right? You might think even someone who's technically informed, you might think, okay, TikTok probably collects, uh, you know, everything I do on the app, how long I look at everything, what I like, but it also probably grabs maybe my contacts or some other stuff from my phone. There are even things that you might not think of. Like if you click on a link in TikTok, uh, on an ad, let's say, right, for like a new shoe, new Nike shoe, or I don't know, some movie that's coming out. It's It doesn't take you to Safari or Chrome on your phone. It opens a browser within TikTok. So actually there's even stuff where now we're TikToks tracking uh, things that you're browsing within TikTok. So part of the debate is we have all these apps that collect a mess of data. I mean, Facebook uh, collects all kinds of things. They've gotten, the FTC has gone after them for You know, a few years ago, uh, there was this uh, period tracking app that was giving menstrual data to Facebook and like Facebook was linking it up with others. Like, So part of it's just apps are a mess and there's no data regulation that we really have that's that's strong. Um, Part of it, as you said, is this China piece, the fact that TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a massive Chinese technology company, and concerns that uh, okay, well, you know, every country spies. And so, um, of course, at some point, the Chinese government's going to go to TikTok and say, we want some data. That risk, in some minds, is made worse, because there's uh, not as much or no rule of law in China compared to the West. So that's another piece. Um, and, you know, another thing uh, I think of is the, the journalist, Mara Vistendahl, um, has this great book, The Scientist and the Spy, which is about uh US-China relations and industrial espionage. Really interesting book. Um, but but she she says in there that some of these China issues are a Rorschach test, which is that it's never just about the specific issue, right? Like it's never just about, in that case, uh the Chinese government's plan to steal agricultural innovation from the United States. It's not just about right. TikTok, it always reflects this broader view or broader uh, sentiment about China, about the Chinese government. So all to say, I think um, what's going on now from the government side towards TikTok is gonna hit uh, an inflection point very soon because CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US is nearing the end of a negotiation with TikTok, as you said, to do some kind of restructuring, some technical changes, to, to mitigate, in their mind, uh, security concerns with the app. That's coming to a head soon. Another piece of that that no one really talks about in the media is that the president is also going to have to make a decision uh, about what to do with that negotiation, right? Because CFIUS is a process ultimately beholden to the president. And um, you know then you get into all kinds of political questions of if Biden lets TikTok stay in the US, Republicans are going to go after him for it. TikTok is a huge base for young voters, right? So like, there's all these questions that that are going to have to be answered. And at the same time, just to, to wrap here, you have a bipartisan group of, uh, in Congress, it's not a huge group, but um, two Republicans and one Democrat who've introduced this bill to completely ban TikTok. Uh, and so you have this situation where, part of the executive branch says, we see the risks, we agree there are security risks, we think it's possible to have a middle ground kind of mitigation that lets it stay in the market, you know, doesn't uh, really eliminate that platform for speech, but also addresses risks. You have some people in Congress, especially uh, in the Republican Party, who say, Absolutely not. I'm never going to accept any kind of you know written down agreement with or restructuring of TikTok. Uh, I insist on a ban, and that's the only way to address the risk. So we're hearing that we're nearing this point where you know Cipius could have a negotiation, Congress could try and override it. Biden's going to have to decide. It's a it's a really really uh, interesting uh, space right now.
0: It is is uh, just uh, briefly uh, uh, as we end here and we run out of time. Is banning it really, Justin, the easiest way to do that? Or is there a way, is there some way around it, whether it's through Oracle or Microsoft or anybody else?
1: I think it, so I think it comes down to what risks people are concerned about. Um, but, uh, yeah, right, because because it'll depend on the issue. I mean, I think um, there are ways to at least mitigate some of these risks like data access by doing corporate restructuring potentially, right, in a way that puts corporate and market and legal barriers of sorts in between uh, TikTok and ByteDance and then the Chinese government. Um, But again, some people are are not going to be content with that and will you know, think the only way to address these concerns is to prohibit it from operating in the US entirely.
0: Justin, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for uh, joining us and looking forward to having you uh, and your uh, partner, uh, Gavin Wild uh, from the Atlantic Council, join us uh, soon to talk about Russian disinformation. Absolutely fascinating and great work on that uh, from both of you. Great. Thanks so much. And joining us now is our good friend, Andrea Schauman of Fortress Information Security. Uh, Andrea, thanks uh, very much for joining us. Uh, happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Hope you had great holidays and great to have you back on the show.
2: Hi, Happy New Year to you. I can't believe it's been so long since we've talked.
0: Andrea, thanks very much uh, again for joining us. Last week, we uh, had a, a look at the year ahead in terms of cyber uh, with uh, Mark Montgomery, retired uh, rear admiral and the executive director of the Solarium 2.0 Commission, and he's with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies uh, as well. Um, I wanted to get your sense right from more of a deck plate level, from a practitioner level. Uh, what are the top three focus areas uh, for industry, you think, over the over the coming year?
2: Oh wow, uh, that's a huge question. Uh, so if you're gonna narrow it down to three, I think it's going to be um, for industry, it's going to be the uh, organizational priorities. So understanding what the roadmap looks like and, and how to start to implement these policies both internally and in response once they get the demand signal from the government. Um, resourcing, you know, how to pay for this, uh, whose responsibility is to pay for it. Um, and then how to continue to build awareness and preparation while staying ready. Um, because it's still a persistent threat. You know, they don't get the opportunity to sort of shut down the threat environment as they adopt these new policies. Um, They have to, you know, keep everything safe while they're continuing to um, fortify and harden their environment.
0: Um, You know, for those in the uh, audience, there's always a new listener or an old listener who may not get it. Walk us through what the the roadmap is and what the implications are. We've talked about it a, a couple of times and other guests have as well, but talk to us a little bit about the roadmap so that the audience has sort of a clearer understanding of what that is because it's actually something much more executable than some of the tribulations we went over, for example, right, CMMC, which was on off changing, whereas this is actually sort of a a much more strategic uh, vision that we're trying to implement.
2: Sure, sure, and you know, you mentioned CMMC, um, and I think that that's a great example of how dynamic the environment is and trying to implement policy and trying to implement these um, really stringent cyber hygiene controls and security practices in an ever-changing threat environment and trying to adapt in real time for what makes sense to organizations as well as what makes sense to the government. Uh, The roadmap itself is always going to be dependent on uh, the level of criticality or the level of threat within a system. Um, You know, how dangerous is it if this data gets compromised? Uh, And then it's also going to be prioritization within the organization or within the the government program office. Um, You know, can they pay for it? Is cyber at the front of the conversation? both in practice when they're trying to implement these policies and when they're deciding on the budget and um, you know, getting getting finances squared away for handling their top priorities.
0: So how do people end up paying for this, right? I mean, that's a big concern. One of the things uh, that we have observed is whether big companies or small, they may know they need to invest uh, in right. cybersecurity. They do not invest in cybersecurity and then they're subject to a ransomware attack. As we heard at the top of the show, right, Royal Mail, Personal information hasn't been disclosed from uh, customers. Apparently, that's a good thing. But then again, the entire global distribution of one of the most most imp- world's most important um, mail systems has been derailed by it. Right? Right. What are What are ways that government can help, especially smaller companies that are still handling very classified information, to improve their security and not you know, sort of decide like, well, the bottom line is more important. I'm just going to slip that cyber thing. You know, I'm going to delay that call to Andrea just for one more year. Right. Uh, you know, to make that bottom line.
2: Right. Well, I mean, it's absolutely a priority. I mean, you hear it now in almost every conversation. It's the forefront and of concerns and and understanding how to approach this this massive project. But you said, how do they pay? I mean, you pay now or you pay later? Um, either investing in security and investing in solutions and adopting. Uh, new practices and being proactive in the in the security approach, or you pay post event. You know, either in uh, negative reputation and business impact. Um, you know, loss of data. Hopefully, not loss of life. Um, you know, and trying to recover post incident. So obviously, the investment on the front end makes the most sense, and we'd all love to see everybody take a proactive approach. But it's challenging. Um, you know, in finding the money to pay for it and understanding who's responsible. Um, you know, for the, the cost and the burden of um, both the, the financial cost and investments. And then, of course, the intellectual resources and the analysts and the um, red assessors who need to be involved in these projects. So there's a lot of conversation about whether that is um, on the private sector side and they need to bake that into their solutions that they're proposing back to the government, or if the government needs to build in those costs as they're offering these awards and, um, and bringing private industry on contract. So we talk all the time about the strength of public and private partnerships and the ability for the government to leverage what the private sector is doing and and start to adopt practices at the speed of business, at the speed of industry. I think that is a a wonderful use case here where you can see private businesses starting to um, adopt new practices and then working on the intent of the new cyber hygiene controls and thinking about what those are really meant to protect and then working backwards. So Uh, Again, to reference CMMC, that's that's born out of the controls from the NIST and companies who are working with the government should already have those practices in place. So going back in and making sure that they are um, aligning with the cyber hygiene controls and the security practices that were already supposed to be in existence or in place and making sure that those are, um, you know, finely tuned and, and reportable and they're able to be accountable for those back to the government.
0: Um, you know, you uh, mentioned uh, partnerships. I mean, everybody talks about partnerships. We've talked a lot about it. A lot of other, our other guests have talked about the importance of public-private partnerships. There are trade associations um, uh, as well um, in, involved in this. Um, what, what more can we say, right? Uh, and, and, and how do you think these partnerships sort of evolve in, in 23? Because there are more people more focused on it. Uh, as, as something, right? I mean, it takes leadership. So you're getting that leadership, whether from Chris Inglis in the white house and Newberger, Jenny, Lee on down as, as we've heard. Um, how, how are the nature of these uh, partnerships, whether with government uh, and industry, but also among industry and among think tanks and, you know, how is, how's the whole ecosystem changing uh, from well, I, your perspective?
2: Yeah, I think you nailed it when you said there's more people and they're more focused. So you're getting even more diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, Um, you know, a lot more creative solutioning and and troubleshooting, and unfortunately, as more and more folks have fallen victim to these things, you have a lot of lessons learned that are coming out of those incidents. Um, And then, you know, the recovery and remediation plans and those sorts of things. So you're getting a more important conversations that are happening. Um, And like I said, more diversity of thought. We saw a lot of those conversations um, at the Surface Navy Association Symposium, where people were talking about their experiences or their company experiences. And of course. Um, you know what? Every time an incident happens and it's uh, broadcast in the news or the public is made aware of it, we're able to take that and tabletop that as an exercise or talk about what a remediation and recovery event would look like if that was to happen to us. So all of these conversations are are very very good and important, and I think you're going to continue to see that um, providing uh, faster and, and better solutions going forward.
0: Um, let's uh, talk uh, last about next steps. Uh, and uh, sort of level uh, of uh, effort? What do folks need to bear in mind?
2: Um, I think continuing that appreciation and understanding of the threat, right? It's real. Uh, We say all the time, it's not a matter of if, but when, and understanding what that recovery process looks like, uh, really having a solid understanding of the data environment, the protect surface, what is at risk, um, what are each of these components do or what do the each of these data sets do within your system um, so that if they are accessed by a bad actor, um, you know, what's put at risk, what's vulnerable, and how do you recover? Uh, there's also, you know, the rules and regulations and collecting the objective evidence to show that you satisfy the controls um, and that you have the security in place um, in order to meet contractual requirements and to meet that data call um, or when the government sends the demand signal for a more rigorous regulatory environment. Um, I think the push and pull, or or the tug of war of who's responsible, um, you know, private industry oftentimes is waiting for government to send the demand signal, um, and then the government is sort of waiting for private industry to come up and and be more competitive in their responses and solutions and show that they're they have a proactive ad- adoption of these practices. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of collaboration that needs to happen and a lot of communication. Um, so you know, the next steps are going to continue to evolve. I don't think that there's a very uh, like a one right way or one singular path forward. It's, it's going to be an evolving threat. So it's going to have to be an evolving solution as well.
0: Uh, in, in, indeed. Um, uh, always great having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Uh, a real pleasure and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. It's great because you know Fortress, we can we can help lead these conversations and and really help get involved. Like I said, in the in these public private partnerships and conversations, and figure out where our solutions and technology can can decrease a lot of this stress and confusion and and increase security at the same time. So I really appreciate getting to come on here and and talk with you.
0: Always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much again.
2: Thanks, Vago.